Hello and welcome to the Blindspot Film Podcast. My name is Benjamin Weeb, and today I will be discussing Birdman, or the virtue of ignorance, the unexpected virtue of ignorance, with Daniel from the Movies Podcast. Say hi to the people, Daniel. Hello, friends. It's Daniel Berrios here from the Movies, a pretty self-explanatory podcast, and thank you, Ben, for inviting me on here, man. This is... uh... It's exciting to talk about one of my favorite movies, even though it's got an exorbitant and potentially unnecessary title, but that's part of the reason I love it. Oh, it's it's beautiful. Um, so you've seen the film before. We're going to talk about it in the main part of the show, but before then, I want to ask you, what have you been watching? What have you been discussing? What media have you been liking this past week? Let's see. Um, I don't go to the movies that often. I'm a, a dad to a toddler, so uh, that's taken up all the time. Most of my media is filled with this wonderful YouTube series, real erudite stuff called Little Baby Bum. They sing songs about colors and shapes. Uh, they have like 75 versions of Wheels on the Bus, and if you thought 74 was too many, you better bet your ass they've got like 100 more lined up. They're That's in beautiful. space, they're underwater, no fucks given. Wheels are on every bus in the world. Uh, but yeah, I went to the theater, I saw Smile, which uh, I thought a lot of people like really like loved this thing, and I wasn't quite so high on it. I think it owes a little bit too much to the uh, stuff. Oh, Jesus Christ. I got a Coke here. Y'all can't see this, but there's a magical bottle of Coke here because I need this to survive. I'm tired. But... Um, yeah, I thought a lot of people like really, really liked this thing. And I'm sitting there just kind of like, it's it follows. It's The Ring. It's The Invisible Man. It's like a bunch of other stuff. Um, I'm going to quickly shout out a friend of mine. His name is David Rosen of the Piecing It Together podcast. I jumped on his show to help uh, him talk about Smile, too. And that Dave's a really great guy. If you're going to bring somebody on to Blind Spot, Ben, you got to bring on Dave. He's kick-ass. Give me the but, at, and I will uh, ping him. Will do. Uh <laughs> Was it at piecing pod, piecing the word and then pod? We'll talk about this here in a second. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, but watching Smile, and that was pretty good. Like, there's a great, like, uh, there's a great sense of tension that Parker Finn builds up. It's his feature debut, director and writer. It's adapted from a 2020 South by Southwest short that he did. And uh, it's got Kevin Bacon's daughter in the lead. I didn't know Sosie Bacon was uh, his daughter, but as soon as you like see a picture of her and then you see a picture of Kevin Bacon, boom, it's right there. So you got like horror royalty going on. Uh, but yeah, and, you know, solid movie. Or if you're into like a scary film that doesn't necessarily go wimp out on the PG-13, but it's not like Terrifier 2 levels of like out crazy bat shit, it's a good in-between uh, saw that one, and uh, not terribly much else. I have I caught up on X. Uh, finally, it took me forever. I finally caught up on X, and that movie rules. It's a movie that I have was not kind of seen X, and like I watched Pearl, reviewed mm-hmm. Pearl, was like I should watch X, and then I didn't, dude. And the reason for this is because this week I watched no movies. I bought Last of Us Part One on the PS Five. I've never played The Last of Us before. Um, Ooh, okay. So, yeah, you can expect the pain 
everything that's happening, I do not have the emotional bandwidth to watch a movie. Never mind the fact that it's now <laughs> midterm season at school. And so oh, I'm no. like, whatever free time I have is going directly into The Last of Us. I've tried playing a few other video games so I can, like, you know, slow down. I don't want to, like, blast through this thing. And I'm like, these cutscenes are so boring. Like, hi there, my name is Ben. I am a monotone individual wearing a blue shirt that's got a dark blue outside, a light blue inside. And the camera is staying on me perfectly. That is every game. Reverse cut to your avatar. The Last of Us is interruptions, is gorgeous cinematography that actually does something that introduces environments with environmental storytelling. Like, oh man. And then, of course, there's everything The Last of Us is known for. Like, um, minor spoiler alert for the first 20 minutes, I guess, but you start playing as a girl named Sarah, and she fucking dies in 20 minutes. <laughs> like, what the hell? Oh, oh, this game. Like, emotionally, everything you think you know is false. You're, like, kind of getting to learn people. You don't really trust everyone you meet, but you just start letting to like them. You're like, man, this guy kind of seems cool. He's got a cool kid. Ellie really gets along with him. Boom. They're both dead. That's it. We're not even going to, like, transition to, like, the next scene and, like, really bring you down from this. It's just, it happened. Grow up, move on. This is the apocalypse you need to survive. Just, oh, like, yeah. So anyway, that's my emotional bandwidth right now. I am, I am behind on movie reviews, like actually really behind. I got to watch uh, Werewolf by Night for Cinefied. And I'm like, I know it's oh, on yeah. Disney Plus. And I've heard good things. Like, mm-hmm. I've been me mixed on most Disney Plus shows. I'm like, Disney Plus does really meh television nine out of ten times. Um, but sometimes they have things that I like. Um, and apparently Werewolf by Night is maybe the one in ten. So I'm like, I should watch this. I might like it. But man, it's been hard to watch something. Like today, I woke up, was like, I gotta go find Birdman, because it's not on Netflix or Disney Plus to fight Oh yeah! In spite of the fact that it's a Fox feature. What the f- Okay, I don't like swearing yeah. at corporations, but fuck you, Disney. <laughs> this is actually a movie you should have. It's Oscar- no- I feel like it's Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning. Yeah. And you don't have it on your Disney Plus service? You made me walk around and go to five different stores to find <laughs> this this wonderful this wonderful DVD. Not even the Blu-ray. Like, Disney, get your shit together. Put it on the damn site. I don't care if you're like, well, technically Netflix licensed it for like five years or whatever. Because it's not on Netflix anymore either. Please, help me out. I want to watch this without having to go and run around the city for like two hours to go find a copy of the damn movie because it's a Sunday and in, in Canada it's Thanksgiving. So all the local thrift stores that I Wait, can really? count on to have it are closed. Yeah, yeah. Thanksgiving in Canada is a month before the U.S., which is hilarious. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. You learn something new huh. every day. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I saw this movie uh, about three hours ago now. And... I feel like we should talk about it. Um, That's probably a good idea. It's probably a good idea. It's kind of the topic of today's we show. We got to reward you for your efforts going two hours to find this thing. <laughs> I, I know. It, it needs to happen. So, first, Daniel, I want to ask you. Uh, you've clearly seen the film before, which makes you the first guest to bring a film that you've already seen onto the podcast to watch. Everyone else I've uh, talked with uh, also went into films blind. Um, oh, cool. So... Yeah, which is which is pretty fun. Um, okay, but what is your relationship with Birdman? 
Uh, up until maybe April, it was my favorite movie, like period. Uh, when I first saw it, my favorite day ever on this earth watching movies is um, I live in uh, I live in like North Texas, like a, about an hour above Dallas. And over in Plano, we have this theater, the Angelica, which I know there's some places like in New York and L.A. have it. But the Angelica is kind of like the art house theater that we have. And so one glorious morning, like Saturday morning in 2014, I pulled off a double feature of Whiplash immediately in the Birdman. Oh man, another so, film on the blind spot. Oh yeah, that one's gonna be a kick ass. I, I have I have a DVD copy of Whiplash waiting to be watched. But Beautiful. that's you neither here nor that. there. I so do. yeah, watch Whiplash immediately after Whiplash ends. Like you know, Whiplash is about the drums, and they go into Birdman. The drums keep going, but it goes in a different way. And so the more I think about that day and just that perfect double feature of movies, it was wonderful. And I think over the years, Birdman was one of those things. A lot of my favorite things, music, video games, movies, they tend to be slow burns for me, things that I might not totally like at first, but there's something in it that hooks me and something that just kind of grows in esteem. And the more and more I think about this thing, uh, the reason I changed my favorite film is because it was Birdman. The idea of just... Birdman being this movie about the little voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough, or mm. that is also the little voice in your head that says at some points you're too good for this, or you're better mm. than everyone else, or yeah. why don't people respect you? It's that constant like need for like validation that you can't give yourself. And so this voice is yelling at you in every direction to do it. And ultimately, this idea of like you not mattering in the grand scheme of things and how we reconcile that. So my new favorite movie is Everything Everywhere All at Once. I, I was like, you said April, and I'm like, all right, what movies came out in April that could topple this thing? And yeah. And you're like, Birdman, and The Ego, and everything, and the nihilism. And I'm like, that's it. It's EEA. That's it. Everybody knows it. And yeah, good choice. Very good movie. I think what it is is that uh, who Ki Hui Kwan is playing in EAO, that's who I want to be. But ultimately, Riggin Thompson, I think, is who I am. And that kind of mm. scares me. But at the same time, it's a good, like, I, I feel like a kinship. I feel like I'm not alone in feeling this way. And the fact that other people liked it enough to vote the damn thing best picture. Uh, Inyaritu is so obsessed now, especially now with Bardo, like looking into himself and portraying that on film in ways that uh, are both really self-deprecating, but also kind of like puffing himself up too, because that's the error of being human and being egotistical mm -hmm. beings in general. Uh, just all of that, I feel a kinship with, and I'm hoping that if I acquire enough of these perspectives that maybe we can, like, build our own little, like, block tower to getting over our own bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's my relationship with Birdman. Man, oh. There's a lot to unpack with that, and I think it's because Birdman is a packed movie. I don't think I've seen a film in a while that just hits the ground running like Birdman. Like, it gave me a lot of the same um, 
maybe not vibes, but the um, like uh, intellectual requirement almost of like the social network where you need to be paying attention from moment one. Because if you lose track of something, you're going to miss something big. Um, and unlike with the social network where I had to bump, I, I basically watched it or started watching it and then bounced off and said, I'll watch this later. I don't feel ready. This I had to watch. And I was like, all right, we're strapping in the seatbelt. We're going to Mach 10. Let's, let's get going. <laughs> and this movie moves. Um, and it moves really weird. I, I know when I watched it, I initially was like, I can see why this movie matters a lot to a lot of people, not just people as like, oh, it speaks to a lot of my own personal self, but also to the social media, the film landscape today. It is a film that is so deeply on the pulse of blockbuster filmmaking, where the smallest things feel really relevant about it. It's a film where it's like talking about this very individual who is struggling with being a has-been, where he once was popular and now is feels washed up, where he doesn't feel relevant. And its cast reflects that perfectly. You got Edward Norton here, who, like, when you think of Edward Norton, you think Fight Club. And then you're like, oh, what else did he do? And then you have dot, 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 dot. And then you're like, well, he was in the Hulk movie uh, that's, you know, not a part of the MCU really ever because it's never advertised with anything else. <laughs> and then you dot, 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 dot again. And then you're like, huh, okay. That's like the two things I know him for. But he's good in both of those. So why don't I see him more? And, oh, he plays a character in Birdman, which has Michael Keaton, who was Batman in 1992, and then he wasn't. And you got Emma Stone, who is playing a younger individual, who, at this point in time, in 2014, is just coming off of Amazing Spider-Man 2. I don't know if this was released before then, or after, but it's it like... Was, uh, it's before. Uh, Spider-Man 2, I think, was in May. It's, it's definitely a summer blockbuster, that one. Yeah, that one was a summer blockbuster. And if this is like before, it's like, wow. Like, you have just that cast alone, where it's like, this adds so much more depth to this in what it's saying about blockbusters. I love that it changes their names, but it still refers to RDJ and other individuals for their big franchises. And I'm like, yeah, I can see why someone like Movies with Mikey would talk about this film a lot in terms of algorithm and the new movie landscape where it's no longer movie stars, but it's IP and familiar faces that make things good, not the quality of it. The things that get big aren't big because of their merits per se, but because of what we recognize and the nostalgia. And I also like talking about it personally, my favorite movie of all times, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a film all about love and what does love mean? And this film, what do we talk about play. when we talk about love? Exactly, and it's like, okay, yeah. wow, like I'm jumping tracks here, but like thematically, we've stepped over three different areas, and yet they all connect in this idea of wanting to be admired. Yeah, I mean, the and whole movie. What we do for that? Yeah, the whole movie starts with this uh, opening quote, I think, from Carver. Which is like uh, something about like, and did you get what you wanted in this life? Even so, and he goes, "Yeah, what was it?" He goes, "I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be admired. Uh, 
I wanted to feel myself, I wanted to feel myself beloved and call myself beloved on this earth. And it's such a, like a, I, I always thought of it as just like you talking to God when you finally enter heaven and you're like, did you get what you wanted out of this? You know, mm-hmm. this experiment of your life. And it's like, really all we wanted is just to feel appreciated. Appre- what was it? Appreciated and evaluated and, you know, respected and validated. That's what you told me. You know, the yeah. famous next best picture, like snippet that uh, Negley uses for that intro. But uh, yeah, that's really what it is. We want to be respected. We want to be validated, loved, admired, beloved on this earth. Excuse me, Lord. That Coke is keeping me alive today, friends. <laughs> but um, that like demand for love and to be respected because of who you are, tying it into that IP filmmaking, you know, not just the IP. There's that like side throwaway line when they're just like, oh yeah, the third movie where nobody barely remembered who was even in the suit. It's not about mm-hmm. the suit anymore. It's this idea that you have to reconcile that people aren't there specifically for your talents. They're there for the IP, which on the one hand, duh. I mean, you know, if people were really there for Christian Bale, would, you know, Batman v Superman have its fans? Would the uh, Batman that came out this year have its fans. If you were really into Batman, only specifically for one actor, you wouldn't go into it. But no, you're interested in the character. And so on the mm-hmm. one hand, that's an ego check. That's like, a, hey man, you're not the show here. You're just a part of it. But on the other hand, it does hurt to think that, yeah, I am ultimately disposable, replaceable. So it's that yin-yang side of your place in the world and you having to reconcile that you are just you and you have to, you know, live with that. And I think it's best for us if we accept ourselves and find the, I guess, validation in ourselves and in our work just for the fact that it is pure work. And mm-hmm. um, everybody in the movie is reconciling with some form of, like, not being able to accept themselves. I mean, shit, Edward Norton's out here. One of my favorite uh, meta commentaries on this is uh, – whenever they first introduced that he's going to be part of the play and Naomi Watts and Zach Galifianakis are talking, he's like, didn't he, isn't he in that one thing? He's like, yeah, he quit or got fired. I don't know. And if you think about Edward Norton in Incredible Hulk, how he's fighting with these people over the Avengers shit. Yeah. He quit or fired. Who doesn't care? Because Edward Norton's like that. And so I love the like gung ho nature with which these people kind of jump into the rumors and the, you know, rumors buried in truth a little bit about themselves and just decide to like send themselves up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even Edward Norton, he had his problem is that for all the bullshit he speaks about seeking truth on stage, he's still pretending. He's just, he's mm-hmm. not comfortable with himself. He's acting out in the real world when he doesn't know what to make of himself without other people's validation in the theater world. He couldn't give a shit about the real world. He just wants to hide in this thing the same way Riggin wants to hide in his admiration of a career or the same way Sam, his daughter wants to hide in this uh, sort of self-deprecating idea of like, Oh, I'm the rehab girl. I want to make myself into this character and seem invisible to the world. And everybody here in some way, shape or form is stuck between embracing just the truth of who they are and also building this giant wall to create this uh, fabrication about themselves that presents to the other world. 
And so <laughs> I think one of the things that people get hung up on with this thing is the blockbuster bashing of it. And a really reductive take is just to be like, look, this thing just hates blockbusters and whatnot. But it, for one, these are all coming from egotistical people who are up their own asses. And so those are truthful to those characters. But two, it's bashing the blockbusters because everybody here is insecure. That's the real weight of Birdman, the insecurity of everybody. It's just Mm -hmm. told from people and written by people who live and breathe Hollywood industry politics day in and day out. These are the people that actually know what's going to be in deadline and variety and don't read it on the fucking website when it comes out on Twitter or something like that. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just um, like when we're talking about the pulse of uh, blockbusters, one of my favorite lines is that when they're talking about Jeremy Renner is like, uh, Jeremy Renner, who, who I felt so bad. <laughs> it's uh it's a golden (laughs) line like actually very funny because in 2012 that's like oh duh jeremy renner in 2014 it's like "Mm, jeremy renner you mean the guy in age of ultron and the jason Bourne reboot i think like man that is a it is a very funny line it gets funnier over time where now it's like oh yeah jeremy renner with his own social media app and also this film is also acutely aware of social media yeah. Like, there, there is so much of this that is 21st century um, understanding of, like, yeah, the ego and the desire to be validated and how the playground changes, right? You have the art critic who's like, you aren't producing real art because you're taking this stage from someone else. And you have Edward Norton's character who's like, Um, constantly trying to find himself on the stage, but never able to really find meaning outside of it. And even on stage, he still pushes people around where they dislike him, even though he's able to draw in crowds, where he almost becomes just something to use to guarantee their um, survival on stage. Yeah. And as a production, you've got Michael Keaton, who's struggling a lot with the idea that he is an imposter where he doesn't fit in this arena anymore. He should just be running back into the suit of Birdman. Um, and, and yet he also has so much self-respect that he doesn't want to do that anymore where he like, it, it gets mentioned to Birdman four and he's like disgusted by it, repulsed um, where he's like, no, I'm doing something else. Can you not appreciate me for me? Um, it's like, yeah, a fight between the ego and, and the recognition you want and also just like that desire to be accepted as who you are because like there, these characters all fight with that, but they also, I, I find watching this really interesting because each character isn't seen by one another. Um, maybe oh, the yeah. closest, the closest we get to that is like these small sequences of intimacy where, um, someone like, oh, shucks, I'm going to completely forget names. Uh, IMDB, save me. Uh, da, 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 uh, who, who, are we, who are we going for? Are we right, going we're for Regan's uh, girlfriend? Laura, yeah, Andrea, or yeah, Laura and, and Andrea uh, Leslie. Yeah, Andrea, oh, Andrea Rasbro and, and, and Naomi Watts. Yeah. Yeah, right. And they, they fall into each other because, like, uh, for um, Laura, which is played by Andrea Riseborough, 
Uh, she's never given any recognition from Michael Keaton after so many years. Um, and it just basically haunts her where she constantly is like almost chasing after him, working with him on the next thing. And yet is gone, disappeared. Naomi Watts's character gets like, has one performance and a traumatic, a traumatic event, um, where she is like sexually assaulted on stage. All right. And, immediately Michael Keaton's like trying to comfort her and to like make sure she stays on and where they both realize that they are, they aren't seen um, to be people, but they're seen to be like people on the stage. And, and in that moment they realize that they are the only people accepting each other. And you can see that that speaks to me, a portrait of a lady on fire fan deeply like it runs like three layers deep because it's like okay yeah you got like the the innate uh sexual um uh experimentation and uh like a lesbian um vibe but you also then build on that with the idea of who's watching who who's paying attention to who and it's like oh it's that and this builds even deeper because then you go to another character someone like sam uh played by emma stone brilliantly as well may i add um and her entire thing of being like the stoner girl who's just out of rehab and uh blames her dad for everything and doesn't want anything to do with the world and yet is the most acutely aware of it where she's like oh you're not cool anymore social media is the next best thing you don't even have a facebook profile and like she's the one who watches everything but is never seen she wants to be invisible. Um, and yet when Edward Norton's character uh, pays attention to her, she immediately feels that validation and wants to be seen. Right. And it builds a relationship between them. However, weird and probably definitely, mm, you, you know, questionable, but it, it's like the idea of being paid attention to is love admiration, but beyond admiration, um, but like observation, and I find that really interesting because at the end of the day, we get to Michael Keaton's character and he scorns love in this really weird way where he gives everything. He spites his own face. He, he cuts, he shoots off his nose literally, literally to mm-hmm. get the admiration of the people, right? Not to mm-hmm. get love or affection He'll embarrass himself. He'll do everything for them. But when it comes to people who care about him, he pushes them away. Um, With Sam, he literally runs away from her most of the time. He can't keep an honest conversation with her going. When she calls him out on his bullshit for never being there, he's just like, well, actually, you doing drugs is really bad for my public image. Um, With his estranged wife, ex-wife, uh, definitely, probably ex-wife. That seems. I think they got a divorce. I can't entirely yeah, remember if no, that was they, a plot point. They got divorced, and I'm pretty sure they still own. Uh, like when they're talking about the house in Malibu, I'm pretty sure they got. If they're not divorced fully, they're at least been separated for a while. Yeah, like, at least. At least I want to say. Um, what Sam's like in this? I, I think Sam's probably college age. I want to say like five years at least. Yeah. It it seems that long ago. Yeah. And that, that like idea is he still pushes her away. 
where even like she's like, man, sometimes I forget why I like divorced you, right? And it's like, oh, it's because you threw a knife at me. It's because you literally pushed me away because you were screwing yeah. other women because you <laughs> crave that admiration. You know what's that funny? Very temporary. Um, anytime that he's with Amy Ryan and talking to her and honestly this is michael Ke- this is riggins way of trying to have a real conversation he can only relate to her by his experiences in hollywood so he's talking about <clears throat> how he was scared about on an airplane with george clooney and the whole revelation of this like near-death experience is that i'm not going to be seen on the hollywood reporter on the front page it's going to be george clooney and that idea that he can only talk to Amy Ryan when it comes to matters of fame or like living in California or like these tales of self-destruction, he never mentions like a good time that he had with her. It's Mm -hmm. always this through a lens. He's never allowed himself to just be a person and be comfortable with that. Uh, One of the more interesting examples in, uh, I don't know how you feel about this. I'm a little bit on the opposite of this. Um, there's a moment where he's talking about like, yeah, I kind of regret videotaping Sam's birth. This idea of the capturing of the moment rather than being in the moment itself and existing within it. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that harkens to one of the best like little pieces of production design. It's like when you're in Riggins' uh, dressing room, there's that quote on his mirror that says, a thing is a thing, not what is said of that thing. So a yeah. moment is a moment, not what is captured of that moment. You're still creating walls to distance yourself because you prioritize other things. And when he talks about it, he's like, yeah, I really wish I was just there with you, me, and Sam in that moment. And I find mm-hmm. myself the opposite. I find myself not wanting to take pictures because I want to live in that moment. And yet at the same time, there will be moments when like, I scroll through my phone and there's like – Instagram things my wife got from like a year ago when our kid was like a baby. And, you know, I see this kid's face every day. So the time really hasn't changed it for me. What really grabs me about those moments in time are those snapshots. So there's beauty to be had in those creating those moments. And there's a question in my mind that's like, well, if you don't remember the moments, were the moments worth having? And I'm like, Mm. they, they must be. Because, you know, yeah, like, we love, this is going to be a weird fucking tangent. Uh, oh, I cat, love it, though. Our cat passed away a couple weeks ago, or like a month ago. We had to put her down. And uh, my son is about two. And so occasionally, um, we'll show him pictures of her, and he'll say that it's the new cat. Like, we adopted a kitten shortly after. He'll say it's her name. Like, clearly, he's going to be a young boy. He won't remember the good times he had, like, snuggling her on the couch and, like, all the things that are captured in frames and moments and whatnot. But then I told myself, like, well, that doesn't mean that the love wasn't there. Just because, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody took a picture of a tree falling on Instagram, the tree still fell, right? The moment still exists regardless of whether you can remember it or not. And so I think growing comfortable with the notion that like our lives exist and we don't need to consistently try to, I guess, puff them up or place them on a frame or, you know, constantly relive that moment, whether it be in a review or a criticism or some like 
external opinion of our life, that doesn't mean our life isn't worth having. If somebody doesn't have an opinion to say on it, or if somebody didn't, you know, make a record of it, so you could look back on it time later. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm also got like I a rational fear of like dementia too. I think for that reason, in my mind, just that fear of losing someone that I love, but like in the moment, like, like I still exist clearly, but if I don't remember the person that I love, does that make the love matter? And I'm trying to get comfortable Mm. with accepting that. Yeah. As long as I love people in the moment, that's good enough. Yeah. I mean, you're going to, I'm going to go on two different pieces of tangents here, but firstly, talking about like, well, does it matter? And I can only recall when uh, Sam is making those notes on the piece of toilet paper, those dashes and saying each dash represents a thousand years of the earth existing of humans existing. And this two square, these two squares represent human existence. Right. And it's like, we are temporary. We are only around for like, not even half, like a speck of that time. Right. Just because, like, you will be forgotten. It is a, a fact of this world. Like, nothing will be remembered forever. Um, the pharaohs once ruled, but now they are gone in the yeah. dust. Right? And there's a beauty in the melancholy there, but there's also a beauty in just being around. Right? In existing and being okay with your existence. Right? Like, and like clearly, think about it, man. How many? I know it's depressing. How, no, no, no. How, think about this. How many sperm are shot out? Like, and you were the one. Because think about it. You're here for an ins- insignificant moment of time, but you know what? You're the one that made it. You and I mm-hmm. are here now. The fact is, where where are you in Canada? Like, you're in Canada, right? Oh yeah. I'm in fucking Texas. Woo! I'm in fucking Texas. The fact that this moment is happening right now that you can see this like rainbow thing that's hanging up behind me and i can see that light in your cabinet in your room the fact that we can experience it and have this conversation right now is mind-blowing what a gift you could do this with me you could do this with somebody in australia you could do this with somebody in los angeles the fact that these things exist the fact that i have the faculty to express myself in this language the fact that i can fucking like feel that fizz of coke it's a beautiful thing and if you think about how many specs won't be able to have this moment like the fact Mm -hmm. that we have the joy and luxury to experience this moment shouldn't that mean that we all just like like Forget about the horse shit, but yeah, we yeah. are so enslaved to this notion of what people think about us or how we're supposed mm-hmm. to live our life based on a system that's created by the temporary and ephemeral. It's maddening. I, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, there is it's so much beauty in like just what you said, right? It's like this is a, a one in a billion opportunity the fact that this happened is like improbable and yet it happened and therefore is that not significant enough and yet the fact of the matter and what what birdman proposes as its central thesis i think is that humans are innately really bad at taking at being optimistic at at looking at what's happened as 
things that are beautiful and to be remembered and to be cherished. And instead we kind of like look at, well, what's not happening? Oh, I was a superhero, but I'm not anymore. Right. I, I was the king of the stage, but yet now I'm not. Now I'm a lowly peasant who can only be admired by running around New York in my tidy whities trying to get to a stage performance um, <laughs> through the front door, running past all the actual problems happening at me. Can you imagine, um, though, they took the script. Some, I bet you they're sitting around going, hey, you remember that dream where you're like running around in your underwear in front of everybody in the embarrassment? They expand the fact that they've got like the band playing and the people trying to get photos and like signatures with the guys he's running out of the way. It's such a funny sequence. I, it's so extravagant. I love that part. Yeah. And it's like, let's just do that. Right. And it's amazing. I I think in talking about like the film's qualities, I've heard in in my time as a, a film connoisseur, mm, yes, mm, uh, to be artsy, you hear about the one take nature of Birdman, and that was like maybe the one thing I knew the most about it. I knew that I knew Michael Keaton was in it. I knew it was loosely tied to Batman, and. Basically, that's it. I didn't even know Edward Norton was in this or Emma Stone oh, wow. was in this until I watched that was a it. Great surprise like, for you! Oh yeah, they were great surprises and beautiful surprises. Mm, a little je ne sais quoi. I didn't know I needed it, but I did. Um, but like, there's that one take. I've I don't know. I didn't like 1917 as much as other people, and so I was I've I've been on the fence. I'm like, ah, you know, am I gonna really like Birdman? Like, the one take is good in 1917. And I guess that film does a lot of things that, you know, are artistically challenging. And the fact that it works is a marvel and should be celebrated, but it didn't work for me on the same level as other war epics, EX Dunkirk. I'm like, there is a, like the tension here while still good. I feel like you're missing a lot because you're trying to tell just a one take story and whatever. And I'm like, I don't know if I'll like Birdman. One takes, like, eh, you know, Hitchcock's famously said that it it ignores a fundamental piece of storytelling in film, and that editing. And yet I watched this, and I'm like, no, that that one take works. Because, one, you're talking about plays, which essentially is what you're doing when you do a one take. You're, You're making a play just going over different settings and recording it to be broadcast, right? Um, but more importantly... The tension in this is through the roof. I was watching this, and as a first-time viewer, I was like, oh shit, is he going to make Deadline? Is he going to make the cuts? <laughs> is he actually going to make it to each scene? Like, this film goes out of its way to tell you that time is passing with every moment, and because of the stakes it sets up that this play is his shot, and if it goes wrong, he's screwed. Yeah. At least I get you get stuck in that headspace. And it sucks you in, and you're, and every moment becomes this tense bit. When he's taking the cigarette outside, I was like, you're not going to make the cut. When he's napping in his room, <laughs> and um, Sylvia comes up to say, hey, like, we're going to have a chat. It's like, I don't know if he's actually going to make it to stage today. I, I, You just get sucked into it really well. And that craftsmanship, marked with great performances across the board, um, just keeps this thing moving and grooving. And you got the beautiful music that is cued expertly 
where scenes don't have music, but sometimes they do. And there's so much surrealism where it's like, oh, is he actually moving things with his mind or does he only think he is? Is he flying or does he imagine this? It keeps you on your toes because you're never brought out of um, the hyper-realism of a one-take. And it just works. Like, uh, it's impressive. Yeah, uh, I'd like to... And even on top of that, it's not an actual one take. There are definitely oh, no, there, there are definitely edits, and that's the appearance of the one take is super important on this. Uh, there's one great edit that I've never, for the life of me, been able to capture. Like catch it with my eye. It's the one. Um, God damn it! They're going up a building on the corner, and then you see time pass. It goes from night yes. to day. And then it like the camera comes down onto the city street. It's like a different side of that building, but then it goes from the side of the street that the building's on here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I can't explain this on podcast. Fuck it. But uh, it's a fine. Anyway, you scroll all the way down and then move across the street into Riggins' room as one fluid motion. It's almost like the camera just got shoved on a crane outside and got dragged back in on this gigantic track. And I'm sitting there going, how the fuck did Chivo pull this off? Son of a bitch. That's why he got the cinematography Oscar for this. Uh, But I like the one-take idea just because this is, for one, getting you in the headspace of Riggins' Thompson. And he mentions at one point, he's like, I haven't been sleeping, like, at all. The only time Rian ever goes to sleep, he just passes out on the, like, the steps of some building. Like, this guy is clearly not in a good state of mind, and everything is swirling around him. He's probably hallucinating because he's tired, and because he's anxious and terrified, and all that headspace is reflected in the cinematography where people just come in and out of his life. And God bless the performers for being able to come in and out. And it just feels, for the most part, like they just happen to stumble in that moment. We're just happening to follow people. Uh, you're mentioning the social network and maybe thinking about Aaron Sorkin. There's a very West Wing filming about this the beauty of the west wing is having those long takes where you could follow like seven or eight different people in one scene and get different a b c and d plots all at once but because they all coexist in the same space and the mania of it all the show so to speak that um really gets you locked in and so i really like the one take of that yeah, I'm a fan of both 1917 and Dunkirk. I I really couldn't give a shit about the one take of 1917, but there's something in me about uh, Schofield finding his heart again after going through the worst day of his life. That's actually really comforting to me. But yeah, fucking Dunkirk is slept yeah. on by a good chunk of folks, and I don't understand why. It's great. It's a Nolan movie. The problem is all of Nolan movies are at least good. All right. Well, y- y- people disagree on Tenet. And you know what? I am the last tenant defender. I can understand the complaint. I was drunk. But everything on else is at least remember. good. <laughs> yeah, it's like everything is good he's done. And Dunkirk is amazing. And it's yet the least sci fi y. It's also the shortest. It's 90 minutes. Like, did you see that think in about the theater? That. Like, uh, have you seen? Have, did you see? I Dunkirk? didn't. Oh, Dunkirk's great. I wish. No, we saw I that. I worked uh, at the theater. Until it came out. Uh, I had to quit 
during the summer and I was so sad because I got back uh, to the theater to like keep working in the fall and it was done. And literally everyone I run to was like, oh man, did you see Dunkirk? And I was like, I didn't. I was at summer camp all summer. And they're like, oh, you should have seen it in IMAX. And I was like, great. That's thanks. I th- love you too. I'll, I'll watch it eventually on Blu-ray, I guess. Love thanks for too. reminding me. Uh, yeah, I got uh, a shirt. We went to go. Uh, I blew a shit ton of money for my friends to go see it in a 70 mil on IMAX. Uh, and so that the, sounds so good. Yeah, over in Dallas, we got a, a pretty decent IMAX Cinemark screening. So I got a shirt that says I saw Dunkirk in 70 mil on IMAX because they just uh, handed them out the show. But the whirring of film as you're watching that movie, I think we were like third row too. That thing is just a stunner. Like you really got to get engulfed in that shit, and it's not for the the IMAX; it's for the sound. Nolan's sound oh, yeah. design is like no fucking other man. Like Interstellar in a the theater, shit. That I watched in IMAX. Shit, it's a perfect movie. Um, Interstellar yeah, gets shit uh, on unfairly too. I think that movie's more emotionally satisfying than most people say it is but fuck it yeah well you know most people are wrong um <laughs> most people would probably say oh birdman's boring and billions which of, i don't know how billions you of do flies that. eat shit every day that doesn't make it good yeah see exactly but yeah uh do you have any last thoughts on birdman uh i think we probably have uh I, at least i've reached a lot of my end uh with like you've heightened my experience of the film a lot <laughs> Like, I had a lot of thoughts poured around. I was like, di- like man, uh, Sam and, like, all the sidecasts kind of get dropped off, like, after, like, the second act of the movie. And I was like, that's confusing. But, like, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, actually, it works. It, it's fine, because but, once the movie goes from... Because, uh, honestly, Edward Norton's act is complete with that last uh, talk with Sam on the roof, when she's finally just, like, allowing they're allowing each other one she's allowing herself to be seen by him and two he's allowing himself to actually have like a real moment with her and it's funny he's not acting he's writing he's not performing someone else's work he's creating something himself and he's like a truth or dare it's like what would you want to do to me if you could he goes uh no it's something like you're beautiful or like you're like precious, I just want to see the world like you were with your age. She goes, it's like that's Hallmark cheese or whatever the hell. He goes, yeah, yeah. It's a good thing you're an actor and not a writer, because when he creates yeah. it, his, you know, he's not a good writer, but it was honest, and ultimately that's the thing mm-hmm. that makes her really want him. And as weird as that moment is later, whenever Riggin is looking at like Mike and Sam and his mind is just like, oh, here he fucking goes to mess with around with my daughter to fuck up my show. But really, there's an intimate, sweet moment there. So as weird as the age gap can be, that's a real romantic, genuine moment there. And mm-hmm. I don't know, those things get dropped off and uh, just the... I don't know the end of the movie. I'm still I'm still reconciling with it. That last shot, and today I was thinking yeah, about it. Um, so the end of the movie is uh, he's in his bed. Oh, with, spoiler you know, alert! Spoiler alert! Yeah. yeah. Oh, spoiler alerts. We've talked about spoilers for the entire movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm That's sorry. True. But if you've gotten to this point and you still want to see Birdman, you know, go watch Birdman. Come back here and we'll talk about it. But 
He's in bed. He's shot his own face, his nose off. And I love how his bandages resembled the Birdman cowl. Yeah. yeah I like that a lot. Uh, he finally has a really sweet moment with Sam, too. And you think at that moment, he's got his shit together. He's finally been a good dad because at that moment, he's just there to comfort her. And that's really all she wanted. She wanted someone to care for her in that moment when she was just wanting to be a kid. Like, even the way that she coils up on him and just, like, hugs his chest. It's not an adult woman. It's a child. She's reverting herself back to him. And then he starts hearing that Birdman grandeur in his voice again. It's almost like when you're watching a horror movie and then you hear the da-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na and it like nothing's quite as it seems, nothing's quite over yet. And uh, he like opens the window, it's this beautiful flourish and then he's just gone from the movie. And then Sam steps in, looks down, thinking her dad's killed himself and jumped off. But then she slowly looks up, and we mm-hmm. don't know if this is another surreal hallucination of his. We don't know if she's hallucinating, or it could literally be that he learned how to fly. And what's funny yeah. is that uh, Sam is always like, all I wanted to be was special. And she's the only other character in the movie that's included in the hallucinations. Like, Everybody else, it's very clear that Riggin is in his own head, having his own hallucinations. Like when he's flying, the thing ends with him landing on the theater and going in. And then we realize that all he was doing was (laughs) taking a taxi ride the whole time and he fucking stiffed the cabbie. Like everybody around Riggin Mm -hmm. knows it's a hallucination. But in that one moment, the last moment of the movie, Sam is included in the hallucination. So we don't know if she's the special one. We don't know if Riggin's killed himself. And the last moment he wanted was just to see himself as a great father or I, I don't know. That's such a nice ambiguous ending to me. Yeah. And I mean, I tie a lot of it into the idea that like they, t- they throw this idea out for a Birdman four. Right. And it's like the Phoenix rises from the ashes or something like that. Yeah. And this idea that like you expect him to have fallen, but maybe he's ascended. Maybe he's finally become the dad that she needed, right? You have the moment before where he tells um, Birdman to fuck himself, essentially. Yeah. Right? To stay in the bathroom, you're a piece of shit. Get fucked, yeah. Go down the toilet. Oh, yeah. And you have that moment, and it's like, is he finally learning um, to accept that, or has he doomed himself? And I like to be optimistic. I like to think that maybe he has grown. (laughs) And the, the the wonder in Sam's eyes leads me to that appreciation, to that idea. And I can hope for that because I, I like thinking that the film is more optimistic than it seems. There's a lot of messy people in this film and all of their arcs, uh, for the most part, conclude when they learn to um, enjoy the moment to appreciate what's around them and to stop being so stuck in their own heads about what they almost think they should be doing. Right. And I I really hope that's where it ended. And it's, it's a good ambiguous ending for that. It's, it's brilliant and it's something to think about and it can change depending on who you are. And yet I think it, no matter what, it still, um, 
gets the movie's message across really well. Yeah. Uh, I was actually on the opposite. I've always thought that he killed himself in that moment. Hmm. And I, I think he killed himself with like a smile on his face. Like I genuinely think he didn't mean to. In my mind, Riggin clumsily falls off the window and just splats <laughs> on the ground. Like the way the movie starts with this fireball falling from the sky, Birdman like Icarus mm-hmm. flying too close to the sun and meeting his doom and uh, Riggin meeting his doom in the water with the jellyfish and whatnot. I really, I, I don't know. In my mind, that voice in your head it doesn't go away at the good moments. And even mm-hmm. you can tell it to fuck off for a time, but it's like, uh, kind of like anxiety is like a fever. It rises and then you kind of handle it a little bit and then it comes back again. I don't think it's quite that easy. And mm-hmm. so I don't know in that moment, I've always been stuck hopeful with Sam just because since she's the special one, she's the one that he's, ultimately you know wanted to impress basically for his life i really Mm -hmm. think she's the one whose voice matters the most to him that's the one where he really like stops what he's doing and really listens and tries to get in that you know the fact that she is experiencing that moment with him makes it okay but i don't know just something about it and knowing the way that i feel like whenever i'm like going on and on about like god why am i not next best picture why am i not at fucking tiff and look at all these people getting their <sighs> me too fucking people like their their interviews and uh god look at this asshole taking a picture with fucking jamie lee curtis of south by southwest and then you watch you listen to interviews and you're like god i could have answered a better question than that and in the meantime you've been watching like when it comes time to do my own podcast i sit there going crap if this isn't good like, if I'm not delivering some, like, next-level fucking insight, then who's going to give a shit? And so that judgment mm-hmm. of other people and the judgment of myself, and meanwhile, my kid's yelling at me about trying to make a sandwich, and I'm still tunnel-visioned in my head. I've told my wife for the third day in a row I'm going to get this podcast done, but it doesn't get done, so I'm ignoring that too. And all of that swirl in the brain very much feels like my own miniature little bird man, like with a tiny hammer hitting me in the balls and it never goes away. <laughs> but yeah. I think with enough moments of recognition and hell, he's doing better than me. He's gone to therapy. Like in the movie, he goes, this is a mental formation, breathe in, breathe out, like trying to reel himself back in. And uh, I don't know. I think it's a, I treat it more as a cautionary tale. I think it's really empathetic, mm-hmm. warm, funny, in a super dark way film. In the same way, something like Inside Lewin Davis really works for me as just like an honest, Ooh. sad, dark uh, thing that's, I don't know, it, the honest movies really stick with me. The ones that are like honest yeah. and make me feel seen and shit like that. And I guess that's what good art does too. It just helps you be seen a little bit. I don't know. Let's yeah. let's stick on. You, you find yourself in good art, and the good art inspires you to do better and to be better, um, and tells you that like you are valid for your experiences, and this isn't the end. Yeah, that's yeah. There's uh there's that quote from Miss Marvel this year. It's like what you seek is seeking you, and I, I loved I loved mm. that show. I'm like, but 
I like that, that you're trying – whatever you're looking for in the world, it'll find you. So if you're looking for something better for yourself, if you're looking for some sort of peace, if you're looking to try to balance your life together, chances are that thing will eventually – I don't know if it's manifestation. I don't know if it's some karmic thing. I don't know if it's a balance of the world and the way it shuffles. But I guess the notion that there's a hope that something like that is looking for you too, it's comforting and warm. And I, that's what EEAAO is about for me too. That hope is beauty, yeah. man. So yeah. All right. Birdman is great. Wonderful. Birdman is great. Um, this is where I give my final verdict. Is this like worthy of being what I consider a classic film? Uh, that was like worth watching and worth putting on a blind spot. Yes, yeah, Birdman's pretty good. Fuck uh, yeah. In overall rankings, I think Silence of the Lambs is still number one. It's more of like when I say my shit filmmaking, I mean like <laughs> it's the serial killer police procedural genre. You couldn't list more of my own stuff. Wait, you watched Zodiac, like, oh, right? I love it. Oh yeah, okay, I've seen good. Zodiac. Right. Zodiac. Yeah, yeah. No, I've I've got taste. I watched most of David fin- David okay, Fincher's we're good, movies. We're good. I got to watch more of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, that one, number one. But this is easily currently number two. Now, there's only three episodes. But like, hey. it also touches on a lot of the existential dread. And it it goes into that and feels so honest in ways. And yeah, the Inside Lewin Davis comparison is very apt. I, I think, and that's also a movie I love. Um, this doesn't have Oscar Isaac uh, being like, you know, the hottest man alive. <laughs> but I guess an older Michael Keaton... And a hot Emma Stone check most of the boxes anyway. But yeah, this is very good. Uh, highly recommend if you haven't seen it and you made it to the podcast. What the fuck are you doing? Go watch Go this watch movie, it. please. It's beautiful. And yeah. Uh, do you have anywhere where we can find you? Uh, you can find me on my podcast, just the movies. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, where you shove podcasts in your ear holes. I am on Twitter at the movies underscore pod. And yeah, I just dropped an episode on Smile. I'm doing another episode here on X, hoping to watch Hellraiser and uh, do some more cool shit in the future. You know, if you want to hang out with a dorky, uh, existentially dreading father of a toddler, then, you know, you know where to find me now. And thank you, Ben, for bringing me on, man. It was beautiful. Oh, this was a joy. Thank you for opening my eyes to the world of cinema just a little further. Uh, I've been your host, Benjamin Weep. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Ninja underscore Neb. I also run the at Filmspot pod, I think is what it's called. I can't remember. If you're watching this, um, you know, honestly, I should just pull up the Twitter link right now before yeah. I quote myself wrong. Yeah, no, wrong. that's good. Um- it's probably at Spot Film Pod. All right, give it a follow. We post weekly in air quotes because I missed last <laughs> week. Oops, my bad. Uh, I got overworked. But yeah, uh, we're going to be uploading this, and we've got more fun stuff coming next week. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your day. Stay safe out there, guys. Absolutely.